Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks at greenvilleoaks.org and connect with us on social media. We would love it if you could rate and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Wade Hodges. Hello, everyone. Greetings also to those who are watching and listening online. Glad we can all be together in this way. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 1. Today, we are launching a new series of teachings from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, and we call it Philippians. And we're going to jump right into it by reading from the introduction to his letter, starting in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down to verse 8. It's Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And after that initial greeting, Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending or in confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus." You can see why some have described the church in Philippi as Paul's favorite congregation. His tone is warm and cordial. In other letters to other churches, Galatians is a great example, Paul's tone can be sharper and more confrontational. But this is not a letter of confrontation. This is a letter of friendship, which Paul is expressing his appreciation for their partnership in the gospel. Paul and these Christians in Philippi go way back. He reminds them of how their partnership began on that day. And what day is he talking about? Well, He's talking about that day in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and his traveling companions land in Philippi or arrive in Philippi after receiving a vision from a man saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And one of his traveling companions, Luke, gives us the details of that encounter in Acts chapter 16, verse 12. It says, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. 
One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. That is the beginning of Paul's partnership with his friends in Philippi. He writes this letter from prison, possibly in Ephesus, but more likely in Rome. We'll assume he's in Rome because it makes for a better story. And that he's in prison would not come as a surprise to his friends in Philippi. Because if you keep reading in Acts chapter 16, you will see that a little later, Paul is arrested and put in jail in Philippi. And God uses his imprisonment there in Philippi to add to the number of the Christians in Philippi. So when his friends hear that Paul is imprisoned in Rome, they send one of their own, Epaphroditus, to Paul with some money and probably some other supplies to provide for Paul's necessities while he's in prison. They are not partners in the gospel because they support Paul financially. They support Paul financially because they are already partners in the gospel. This is not a business relationship. This is a Christian friendship. And Christian friendships are always three-way relationships. Yes, Paul and the Philippians are friends. But why are they friends? How did they become friends? Well, they are friends because God drew and is now holding them together in Christ. There's always a third party, God in Christ at work in a Christian friendship. And we will return to the nature of this Christian friendship throughout this series. They are friends in Christ. And his friends in Philippi send resources to Paul while he's in prison. And along with that, Epaphroditus also brings some news to Paul about how things in the church in Philippi are going. And based upon what Paul says in his letter, we get a sense of what that news was. First, we know that Paul's friends in Philippi are facing opposition from some of their neighbors who have not embraced the good news of Jesus Christ and do not embrace the new way of life the Philippian Christians are living. Second, it also seems that there are two prominent women in the church named Euodia and Syntyche who are at odds with each other. And it appears their disagreement is threatening the unity of the church. So the church in Philippi is facing external opposition and has some internal conflict brewing as well. And Paul responds to this news by writing to his friends and partners in the gospel, a church he loves, 
a letter of appreciation. Thank you for helping and supporting me, but also a word of encouragement. In the verses we've already read, we see how Paul opens. He begins by expressing his deep and abiding love for the Philippians. And then he tells them that he prays for them regularly. And then he expresses his confidence that God is still working in their lives. Their present difficulties are not a sign that God has abandoned them any more than Paul's current imprisonment is a sign that God has abandoned him. Paul says, I am confident that God is going to complete the work God began in you when God opened Lydia's heart to the gospel there on that riverbank. And after telling them that he is always praying for them, in verse 9, Paul goes on to share with them the content of his prayer. I pray for you all the time, he says, and here's what I pray for you, which I like that. Gives you the impression that when Paul says he's praying for you, he's actually been praying for you. Unlike a cartoon I saw years ago where a pastor's standing there greeting people and he says, uh-oh, here comes Bertha. I told Bertha I'd be praying for her. Dear God, please be with Bertha. Bertha, how you doing? Been praying for you. Okay, that's not Paul. If Paul says, I've been praying for you, Paul's been praying for you. And we get the content of his prayer beginning in verse nine. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's a lot in just a few lines of prayer. He says, I pray that your love would abound or increase or overflow into knowledge, understanding, and insight. Another way of saying that is, as your love increases, I pray that your wisdom grows. For Paul, there's a connection between love and wisdom. Growing in Christian love, growing in love in the way of Christ, growing in gospel love leads to wisdom. Love for Paul is not an emotion, it's a disposition. It's a perspective on life. It's a way of viewing and navigating the world so that as your love increases, so does your wisdom. And his prayer is that as their love increases and their wisdom grows, he says, you will be able to discern what is best. Another way of translating that is, as your love increases and your wisdom grows, you will come to know what really matters. Because if they know what really matters and then live accordingly, they will be ready for the day of Christ when God completes God's work in them. If they know what really matters and live accordingly, they will bear the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of right living, and God will be glorified. Here's my paraphrase of 
Paul's prayer. It's a bit shorter than his. He's essentially saying, I pray that you keep growing into the kind of people who know what really matters so you can glorify God with your lives. I pray that you keep growing in love and wisdom so that you can know what really matters so that as you live accordingly, you will glorify God with your lives. And why is this the essence of his prayer? Why is this what Paul wants them to know? Well, before I answer that question, I need to tell you the story of Chicken Joe's Mohawk. This is the classic Hodges family story. One day when the boys were little, we were driving in our minivan and I heard a conversation in the back between the boys talking about Chicken Joe, one of their favorite characters. If you don't know who Chicken Joe is, he's an important historical figure whose exploits are chronicled in the cinematic masterpiece, Surf's Up. (laughs) And in this conversation, they're talking about Chicken Joe, and one of the boys mentions Chicken Joe's mohawk. And the other boy says, Chicken Joe does not have a mohawk. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Next, I hear a slap, (laughs) then a grunt, then a punch, and then it gets violent. (laughs) And I pull over the minivan and employ what has to be the most useless tool ever devised by parents trying to get their kids to settle down in the back seat. And that tool is logic. I said, boys, will you listen to yourselves? Consider what you're doing. Right now, you are fighting over the hairstyle of a chicken in a cartoon about surfing penguins. I don't want to hear another word about Chicken Joe's mohawk. Which prompted boy one to say, hey dad, Chicken Joe does not have a mohawk. And boy number two says, yes, he does. Sometimes Christians squabble over things that don't really matter. Now, I've never experienced it myself, but I have read about it. (laughs) It is possible to spend your time and energy taking a stand for fighting over something that on the day of Christ is going to be revealed to be just about as important as Chicken Joe's Mohawk. I don't know what Euodian sent a key or squabbling over in Philippi. I don't know how important it is relative to everything else, but I do know for the sake of the gospel and the unity of the church, Paul writes a letter to his friends in Philippi imploring them not to lose sight of what really matters. He does not want them fighting or dividing over something that is not of the utmost 
importance. And then what he does in the remainder of the letter, because this is only his introduction, the remainder of the letter, Paul answers his own prayer by going on to tell his friends what really matters and also give them examples to show them how to live accordingly. And in doing so, he also shows us how Christian friendship works. He shows us what it means to be friends in Christ. Because friends come to one another's aid in their time of need, and so the Philippians support Paul while he's in prison. Friends also challenge one another, encourage one another, hold one another accountable for their behavior that does not glorify Christ. Brings to mind that phrase, friends don't let friends. If you're really a friend, then there are things you will not let your friends do. Friends don't let friends drink and drive. Friends don't let friends drive and text. Friends don't let friends drink and text. (laughs) Friends don't let friends engage in foolish behavior. Friends don't let friends buy sushi at a gas station. Friends don't let friends take a sleeping pill and a laxative at the same time. (laughs) Friends don't let friends fight over Chicken Joe's mohawk. Friends don't let friends waste their lives on things that don't really matter. In his book, Vital Friends, Tom Rath tells of a research project he worked on designed to answer the question, what is it that allows some people to emerge from and recover from homelessness and not others? And he tells of an interview he did with a man named Roger. When Roger was 30 years old, he had a good life, had a steady job, one wife, one house, two kids, two cars. And several years later, because of self-destructive behavior, Roger lost everything. Lost his job, lost his family, lost his home, lost his friends, and was living on the street. And in the course of the interview, Rath asked Roger, who expects you to be somebody? Who expects you to be somebody? And Roger's answer was, I don't think anybody does anymore. There's nobody out there that expects me to be somebody. He was hopeless. Rath also tells of his interview with Maggie, who grew up, in a difficult home and was homeless by the time she was 16 years old. Six years later, she had a job and then got a college degree. A decade after that, she was working as an executive at the financial services company, had a sizable salary, happily married, large network of friends. And Rath asked her the same question. Maggie, who expects you to be somebody? And without 
pausing, she said, oh, Jessica. Jessica expects me to be somebody. Jessica was the volunteer who befriended Maggie in a homeless shelter and helped her get her first job. And one of the conclusions Rath is able to draw from his research is that both men and women who have been on the street for decades all have at least one thing in common, and that is none of them can name a friend who expects them to be somebody. Who expects you to be somebody? Well, God does, which is why God began a good work in you by opening your heart to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ with joy. Who expects you to be somebody? We do. We, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your partners in the gospel, we do. We expect you to be somebody because we are all friends in Christ Jesus. We are all part of this three-way friendship. So working together with Christ, may we all challenge, encourage, spur one another on to living lives that matter. Because that's what friends in Christ do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for that day. That day when you began a good work in us, when you reconciled us not only to yourself, but to one another and created a friendship. A friendship with you, a friendship with one another. And today, Lord, our prayer is that you would use this three-way friendship, this gospel friendship, to grow our love and increase our wisdom so that we can be the kind of people who knows what really matters and live accordingly so that we can glorify you with our lives. It's in the name of Jesus who draws us and holds us together that we pray. Thank you so much for listening to the message from the Greenville Oaks message broadcast. We hope this message enriched your life and can help you inspire others to follow Jesus because we honestly believe following him is the best way of life possible. Be sure to connect with us online on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.